Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers. Welcome to another business design jam where we take current business design news, current business news, interesting business examples and talk about their relevancy for the work of designers and business designers. Today, I'm joined by Franz, Program Director at the DMBA. Hi, Franz. Hi, Alan. So we will both share uh, two examples that we recently found uh, very interesting. So we'll talk about prototyping with numbers. We'll talk about how different financing models work, what advantages and disadvantages of these different financing models are. We'll talk about how to be creative with channels through which you're selling. So a little bit of the business model design talk. And we'll talk about why Airbnb is in huge trouble. <laughs> so um, uh, we'll talk about examples from some industries that were really hit hard by the corona um, outbreak. So restaurant, hospitality, and retail industries, because those are kind of the extreme cases, the extreme examples from which we can probably learn the most. So if you would like to learn more about business, uh, I'd like to also invite you to join our seven-day mini MBA. So it's an email course which over seven days sends you seven emails and you can learn several business concept, concepts that are relevant for designers. So to subscribe to the mini MBA, head over to beyondusers.com. Cool. So that's everything in the intro. Let's start with the first example, Franz. Should it be me or uh, do you want to go first? Um, I would say you go first. Cool. Um, so... There is this really interesting um, restaurant in Chicago um, called Alinea. It's actually a three-star Michelin restaurant. Um, Franz, have you watched uh, on Netflix? There is a um, show called Chef's Table. Oh, yes. I've not watched all of them, but I really like the show. I watched some of them. So in season two, episode one, there is uh, this really interesting story of a chef who had uh, cancer on his tongue. Do you remember that one? I I can't. I don't know. <laughs> so that was one of my favorite episodes. And I started following not just the chef, but also the business owner of the restaurant. And um, just recently, I came across like a series of uh, Twitter um, tweets, basically, explaining what they did during the corona uh, outbreak. And it's really, really fascinating. So, um, so this guy, this owner of the uh, Alinea, he also runs a, a restaurant reservation platform and um, they have clients from all over the world, meaning that they also have clients in China and Hong Kong. <laughs> so what this means is that when there was an outbreak in China and Hong Kong, he could see what this particular situation would do to the restaurants. And what it actually did was that reservations went from 96% capacity to zero in a week. Yeah. And if you know anything about business, that's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. in no Even financial model. Exactly. <laughs> Even if you don't know anything, you just know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because never never do you put in your financial models zero. You always put like, oh, maybe it goes down by 30%. Or okay, if it's really bad, it goes down by 50, right? Mm, that's and true. Like, as a restaurant, you say, okay, people still want to go out and have fun. So let's say it's 50%. But you don't say zero yeah so obviously when he saw that he became scared like oh well what if this comes to us what if this comes to chicago and the u.s so what he'd done really smartly was he created a contingency plan right 
what do we do for for his own restaurant exactly for the restaurant okay. Also for the reservation for the this blue booking platform, but I'll focus on mm-hmm. the reservation. Uh, sorry, on the restaurant. Okay. So, and this contingency plan was something he hoped he would never have to use it, but obviously we all know that then in the mid March it kind of became necessary. So here is what he did. This is really fascinating. So first of all, what he had to do, what he decided to do, is to furlough all 300 employees. So across several restaurants, so Alinea is just one of them. It's the main one, but it's just one of them. Across all of them, he had like 300 employees. So basically, they all were forced to go on a temporary leave um, because of just extraordinary circumstances. But they kept their healthcare benefits at the level which still allowed them to have or to collect unemployment benefits. Hmm. That was the first part because they wanted to make make kind of the business safe that they at least they have some chance to survive over the long term. The second thing, which is really unusual for a fine dining restaurant, is that they decided to turn it from this super premium in-person experience into a carry-out business. <laughs> Meaning they would not be serving people inside, obviously, but they would create and cook food, which you could just carry out. So you would collect mm-hmm. it, you would come um, you would come there with your car, open your trunk, somebody would put it in and you would drive away and eat it at home. Yeah. And I mean, we can all imagine if this um, restaurant was on chef's table, it was exactly the opposite before. <laughs> exactly. The opposite <laughs> of carry out and putting the food in your trunk, actually. Exactly the opposite. And that's what's yeah. so fascinating about this example is how do you make this pivot? Mm-hmm. So... Um, the data that uh, Nick, so this is the owner, Nick shares, is that before the outbreak, their average um, revenue per person, per visitor, per guest was around $375, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a lot. <laughs> it is. And obviously, this is something you cannot expect during the, the outbreak. First of all, people uh, become more concerned about their financial situations. Some of them lose jobs, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. And also you're just not willing to pay so much for a carryout. Yeah. So this is really interesting business design question. Like obviously you have some something people are desire, like even in the in really hard times, people want some comfort, comfort food, right? Yeah. So maybe it's not about me as a fine dining restaurant offering this super premium experience, but maybe it's like premium comfort food so I feel better. <laughs> yeah. And the question he started with. So really also suiting the situation, right? So in a crisis, I'm not really driven to luxurious uh, goods. I'm rather driven to making uh, making myself feel less bad or let's say comfortable. Exactly, exactly. So they changed the value proposition. Yeah. And obviously one of the first questions here was, what would still be a reasonable price for high quality comfort food? Mm-hmm. So something that people would be comfortable to pay and also to take home for high, reasonably high price because still it can't really be cheap. And, and mind you, again, this is in the US, so the price is a little bit higher. And what was interesting to me is that the whole um, innovation or product design, let's say, let's say product design or uh, food design process in this case, or menu design process came from this one number, which is 40 bucks. So this is decided that $40 feels good for a high quality comfort food, something that people would still be able to pay and willing to pay and mm-hmm. something that they could cook in uh, huge enough quantities to really make sense for them. Yeah. And, and, and this is really now interesting. So usually on, on every night, they would bring in $65,000, 
roughly. Yeah. And now with $40 per, per, per meal, this would mean they would need to sell 1,600. Per night. Per night, yeah. So this started just with 500 um, dishes and all of them were the same. So decided we need to simplify. If you want to make 500 or 1,500 uh, meals per night, we cannot do 30 of them. We just have to do one. But let's do yeah. this one really, really well. Yeah. And, and, and that was... The second part that's really interesting, after you have this, okay, we this is the price we can charge, what product makes sense, and how can we make sure this product actually can be delivered in high um, high enough quantity and quality? So they yeah. went for just one dish, which was beef wellingtons. <laughs> <laughs> so they started with 500. They sold that easily. Uh, and then just a few days later, they scaled up to 1,250. So they are right now at, or when, when I was still trying to, to find more information. And the last info showed that they were at 75% of its previous revenue. Mm-hmm. And there were some indications that they, they're doing even better than they did before coronavirus. Because really costs just decreased, I guess. I'm so glad you brought this up. <laughs> so one of the things that happens if you're just buying one, one raw material yeah. is you can get a really good price. Mm. Second thing, if all the restaurants or most of the restaurants in your city are closed and farmers still have the produce. Yeah. What actually happened is it wasn't just cheap. It was even for free sometimes. Okay. (laughs) Because farmers just had to get rid of it. Yeah. Somehow it's the same that the same thing that happened to oil a few weeks back in the U S when it has uh, had a negative price, there was just so much oil in the in the system that they were willing to pay to get rid of it, basically. Yeah. So a similar thing happened to them. So, you know, like the good news is that they could hire 60% of their employees back in just a few weeks mm-hmm. and they're working on getting back to 100%. Yeah. And another thing I find really interesting in this example is the fact that um, for people who were thinking of trying Alinea as a high-end restaurant and couldn't really maybe afford it before, they could now. So in a way, it was yeah. even marketing thing. That's a really interesting thing. So basically lowering the entry barrier for people to actually fall in love with your product and then getting them to pay the full price probably like in half a year when restaurants are open again. Yeah. And they're back at their own system. That's an interesting thought. Yeah, yeah. I think this whole uh, case is really, really fascinating. Especially, I think one thing that stood out to me was the fact that the plan was prepared rationally before it really happened. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the best time to have the plan you know, prepared. Yeah. And probably you can't really come up with this type of contingency like two years in, in advance. But you yeah. can see these usually these inklings of troubles happening. Like we yeah. could all hear about Corona in January, but... Who was really preparing a, a plan? Yeah, that's true. That's probably <laughs> the, the human kind of "I'll be fine." Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, which was, I mean, even if hopefully uh, most of us are fine uh, in terms of health, uh, everybody is still affected, right? In one yeah. or the other way. Exactly. So I think this is a really nice case of creating contingency plans. 
and prototype with numbers. You know, you go yeah. from, okay, 65K per night is something we need to bring in to cover the cost of our employees to cover basically salaries for everybody. Now, if we change one of the main, most important metrics, which is the price from 375 down to 40, how can we still get to 65,000? Yeah. You know, this is the beautiful thing about numbers that you can see them as prototypes too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, um, my example that I brought plays pretty much uh, along these lines. So firstly, this question of how much do I actually need to get in because I have already costs that occur to me. But also secondly, um, talking about your channel and which you probably need to rethink in such a situation. So this is all very abstract now. Let's just introduce the story. Uh, yes, go ahead. You get a sense of what I mean. So this basically is a two-part story where it's about uh, an entrepreneur and a big corporation that had, as I said, to rethink their, their channels. And they both actually play in the same field, which is the movie industry. So mm -hmm. the first part of the story is um, about a German entrepreneur, and his name is a little bit hard to pronounce for English listeners, probably Finn Kliemann. <laughs> so this guy runs a lot of different projects and companies, and mostly he does it in a very authentic and DIY manner. And at the site, uh, he's also a music musician. And in 2018, he actually um, recorded his debut album. And he turned down a record label deal and decided to do it with his own team. So he founded a record label, produced the mu music, found a partner to manufacture CDs and vinyls, and he sold everything online in this very DIY manner. And actually, he ended up selling more than 100,000 physical records. So not streams, physical records. <laughs> um, which which may maybe tells you a lot about German market also. Yeah, but also about um, how he actually does things. So probably somebody wants to follow this guy. If you don't know him, he's big on Instagram. So you also get a sense on why he actually really sold so many physical pieces. Uh, uh, I'm just curious, like how old is he and like what's his target market? Is it more like the younger generation or more like? Um, he is about, is about 30 and he's actually a web designer and went into being kind of a YouTube star because he did his uh, DIY projects and he attracted, I guess, all different, probably younger people first, but with his other project he's doing, he's also targeting, I think, older, uh, older people because he's also doing a lot in terms of social responsibility, social projects on the side. So I think his bandwidth is very broad. Cool. Um, yeah. Anyhow, this is actually where the movie story starts because after he sold these 100,000 physical records, um, it became clear that this is a story to tell. And he sensed this before. So he produced along the way of producing his album and doing all this, he produced a documentary about how he achieved this in a DIY manner. Um, so he made a movie about himself, which is in the first sense a bit narcissistic, but also kind of cool. Um, and he had this dream that he wanted to stream it on Netflix. And Netflix basically turned him down. So what he did, plan B, he went to the biggest traditional rival of Netflix, which is cinemas, obviously. So he went to a lot of indie cinemas or basically all cinemas that he could grasp in Germany. And he wanted to play this movie on one day at a particular day um, 
in these cinemas. And this plan seemed to work. Mm-hmm. So this plan already was in, in place. Marketing was rolled out. Everything was, was settled. Only that this day was planned for May. And we all know what happened, <laughs> right? Um, cinemas are closed and they will be for some time. So he decided to build his own streaming page now and he sold tickets for that at the same price as a cinema ticket would be. So 12 euros per ticket price, but you stream from your couch at home. And he actually did this already, end of April, and he sold 120,000 tickets. Wow. At the same price as you would have been paid, uh, as you would have been paying in a cinema, Mm -hmm. which is crazy, right? So cinema, 12 euros, uh, but even if you sit on a couch, you pay the same thing. And it did work. 120,000 tickets. And a little side note, he gave away 25% of this um, profit to the cinemas to support them to survive. So I don't want to um, like draw some learnings by now. I just want to level up the story a bit. Um, so to go one level higher. So usually... Uh, the traditional movie industry works like this. A big studio like Warner, Universal, and Paramount Pictures, they produce a movie with a huge budget. Um, and first, the movie goes into cinemas, where they utilize the premium experience of the cinemas, and they also achieve the big margins. Um, and this is what they need in the beginning to reach their uh, return on investment, because the movie budget is easily like 100 million and more. So more than a million is more like the entry of movie in this, um, in this, um, yeah, in Level. this world. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and this is even without marketing. So only after the cinema experience where they utilize the bigger um, willingness to pay and these premium margins, they go to stream online and utilize something that's called the long tail. So the long tail means you sell a lot of pieces with a very low margin, which happens at Amazon generally, but also with all these online streaming platforms, Netflix, Amazon, you rent it for very cheap and the margins are very low, but you still sell so many pieces that it also adds up. But you, they could only do it and they only want to do it after they utilized on the big margins in the cinemas. But what now, right? What if you have something ready like a video and movie premiere, and it is Corona pandemic. All the cinemas are closed, um, so you cannot follow this system. So many companies decided to postpone the cinema start to autumn, obviously at huge costs. Um, But Universal Studios actually went a different way, and this is where the both stories link again. So Universal Studios moved the premiere of their movie Trolls World Tour. It's an animation film. Mm -hmm. And they moved it online. And what they actually did is they charged cinema prices. So they charged $20 in the US and 15 euros in in Europe to stream the movie on your couch. Mm -hmm. And this is something that nobody dared before. Um, because nobody thought that this would actually happen. Can you remember? Do you know how much a movie is usually when you have to rent it on Amazon and it's not in your prime? Mm, four, five yeah, euros? Max, yeah, like $2.99, $4.99 probably. So half. Yeah. And this is not something that they can really work with after they have had so much upfront investment. Mm-hmm. 
And it actually did work because they made 100 million in the first three weeks. So the thing that they first invested, probably a little bit less because it was an animation film, they made 100 million in revenue in the first three weeks. And, and is, is that something that's comparable to like a cinema launch? Actually, the, the Trolls World Tour that I'm talking about now is a sequel of Trolls. And this one reached 350 million in box sales over the whole lifespan. Mm-hmm. So 350 million box office sales whole lifespan versus 100 million revenue um, online in only three weeks. Mm-hmm. So yes, mm-hmm. it's definitely uh, comparable. Yeah, so I guess a lot of c- uh, that's really cool. Like uh, uh, having these this stories is really important, and maybe more uh, studios decide to do this. I guess it would be interesting to explore why they didn't do it so far. And I feel like the reason is just because you don't want to... Um, cinemas are usually a really important partner for studios, right? Yeah. So if you do it just... If you bypass them, they will not be willing to work with you anymore. Yeah. And this is so true. And this is also what Universal actually encountered. So you were asking, why did nobody do it before? So um, basically there are two reasons. So the first one, actually nobody dared to test this. So the first reason is that nobody thought that you would pay a cinema price online when you stream something because you're used to pay 10 bucks for a month of Netflix and not 20 bucks for one movie. So nobody thought this would work from a user perspective. But at the same time, also this downside is huge that you actually piss off your most important customer which actually gives you the big margins in the beginning. Remember the story I told, remember that the user system was going to cinemas first and utilizing the margins and going online second. And this is why nobody there to before. And actually it also happened now. So there is this um, company AMC, which is the world's biggest cinema chain. And they threaten now to boycott universal productions because after they saw that this worked so well, Universal uh, announced that they consider um, basically launching future m- movies um, at the same time online and in cinemas, mm-hmm. which breaks the rule of the industry to the fullest. And now AMC, the biggest um, cinema chain in the world, wants to boycott them. So we see the reason why nobody yeah. did before. <laughs> the interesting thing is only that before the downside of trying it was so high and now the downside of not trying it was even higher. So now COVID um, pandemic uh, and not trying something new, this downside was much higher than just giving it to go and shifting it um, online. Even though mm. you see this, uh, these fears were actually true. So cinemas are not happy about this, uh, this announcement and they're mm. not happy. Their, their plan worked. What I like about this story is that you can see how certain assumptions are baked into the industry. Yeah. And when you enter a certain industry or if you're in it for long enough, you can see that everybody does things the same way and you just copy it because you expect it to still be true. But as designers, like what we're uniquely positioned to do is to actually see those tectonic changes in the customer wants and needs and to maybe see how users different um 
psychology can have, also have impact not just on the product itself, but also like on channels, on the mm. business model itself. However, what I still see like in this whole story, there's one huge risky assumption. Like I think out of this story, it may read as if, oh, we just approved or uh, accepted the hypothesis that people are willing to pay the same for an online um, online experience of cinema. So me buying like a premiere access to movie, I'm willing to pay it for it the same if I watch it at home mm. as if I watch it in the cinema. But I think this may be skewed a little bit right now because people are just more, they're just locked at home and they, the cinema is not there as a substitute. So you just want access to the to to the content, right? So I think the huge assumption is still there. Are people going to be willing to pay the same price for a movie at home that they could be watching, watching in a cinema? Also when the COVID pandemic is over. Yeah, that's very true. So I think this would be a very great next round of, of testing, yes. right? <laughs> after the after the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And I guess you can choose uh, a movie that's maybe less risky to test it with, right? Yeah. Maybe it's a movie you didn't invest in uh, so much money in. That's true. But this is a, a great thought. I mean, um, thinking about what will, even after this pandemic, still be true mm. so now we see that so many i mean from a positive side even though this pandemic has um yeah put a lot of lives in danger and actually also cost a lot of lives we also see that there are on the positive side uh some opportunities popping up and the question question that you raised now is really interesting so which of these opportunities will survive post pandemic so will people still be buying local afterwards now everybody wants to buy local everybody wants to source local um, everybody wants to localize in a sense of um, because they felt the danger of not doing it but will they still want to do it after like the pandemic the pandemic is over and mm -hmm. this can actually be asked for every opportunity that pops up now and it's a really interesting question because i think for some of the um for some of the opportunities it is definitely true that they will last and for others um they they probably won't yeah like when i saw airbnb launching um e-experiences those like remote experiences it like felt like one of those things that probably feels like it could work now but not in the future but maybe i'm wrong but i think this is an interesting thought is what is true now and what's going to be true later and probably making huge bets investments and things that feel somewhere more gravitating towards being true now but not in the future it's super risky yeah. right but still like now is the time to test probably test yeah. certain things yeah i agree um as we see here and this is probably what um what we can learn from it people are eager to try and if they have tried once they probably do it the second time so yeah. let's follow back the logic of the of your um, of your restaurant example again. They tried this um, awesome restaurant now, and they will probably try it in future. Um, and they wouldn't have done it at all if the situation hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a the upside is uh, is really big here to try something new and to really also make it work afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 
Um, All right. So the third example, do you want to go now with the second one or? Um, Up yeah, you? sure. I can go. Um, so we started out with two industries that were really, really affected. And I think this is also something that we see here. So my second example is about a bike shop in Vienna. So here we go really localized. We already had this topic. So a small bike shop in Vienna, they actually opened a new um, shop in, so they were there for a longer time, but they opened a new shop in the fall of 2019. This bike, uh, this shop is called Starbike. And they have, this is just a really traditional bike uh, shop. So they intentionally consult, but do not sell online, but they want you to come in, have this premium experience, uh, test your bikes, um, get some consulting, get some views, and then really get the best bike for you. Mm. And for all of these bike shops, spring is the most important season. So you sell bikes in spring. You don't sell them in summer. You don't sell them in autumn. You don't obviously not sell them in winter, uh, but <laughs> you just sell them around Easter. So that's the mm -hmm. rule that's true for this industry. And obviously we can all see how uh, this lockdown affected uh, this shop, right? So the lockdown in Austria, where this bike shop is located in Vienna, it came into place around in the beginning of, of March. So first week of March, where the season just started. And nobody knew how long this would uh, last. And just to put you in in some perspective for some international listeners in Austria, we had a complete lockdown. So all the shops were closed, um, only grocery stores and um, like very important shops were open, but nothing else. So only yeah. a handful of shops. So obviously bike and, shop. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Pharmacies, groceries, um, and your doctor, if you really yeah. needed them. Uh, but the rest was just closed. So was schools and everything else. So this was a huge um, setback for his company, right? And they immediately saw that. So firstly, they didn't see how long this was going to last. But what they immediately saw is if they did not have revenue, they the company would be in danger because they have, don't have online sales. Um, they fully um, are bound to their real sales and the shop is closed. I think what's interesting is also to realize that most companies in in today's world are operating on really thin margins. Mm. Like if, if you hear somebody saying, oh, we have like 10% profit margin or 20% profit margin, just just let's put this in perspective. It means that if you make 100,000 euros, right? It's like 20 euros, uh, 20,000 euros is what is left to you at the end. And now if you lose two months, it means you're basically on a, right there on the break-even point mm. roughly and now if this pandemic goes for three four months you mean it means you're just basically um generating a loss and that's how this if you go really from 100 percent to zero as this lockdown actually did for this store and for many others is really you can really see how quickly the things can turn around right so that's that that's maybe the back of the story also here yeah and that's true. And what it, what actually is necessary then is interim financing. So basically uh, financing that helps you to, um, to, to get your company uh, to survive. So basically 
you just said you have a certain profit margin. Um, when you lose your sales, you have still your fixed costs, which means you can you have to pay your fixed cost with everything that you have um, saved from the last margins, which is not inevitable, uh, which is not like lasting for for too long. Which means you need some interim financing for some period of time until you get your revenue back on on track again. And mm. um, yeah, you can basically cover your your costs that you have. And this is something that they did. So they went straight to their bank. Uh, they got a loan approved, but then something felt off to them. So it felt off that it was so passive. So what they what a bank loan actually does to you is it gives you the money that uh, you can survive, but still you don't earn anything. So this felt for them just trying to survive rather than fighting this situation, doing something actively. And um, this is actually what they wanted to do. So um, they teamed up with a crowdfunding platform. Um, and this was just another way to reach this interim financing, right? So there are some other ways how you can get financed. And what they did is they, they um, teamed up with this crowdfunding platform, uh, which means as a private person, uh, you could give 100 to 5,000 euros to this company for five years at an interest rate of 8% per year plus the uh, 4% bonus if the, um, certain goals in the business plan were reached. Um, for the company, it's basically the same thing as you would go to a bank. So you just get it from many people, not only from one uh, from one person, right? From one institution, which would be a bank. And they actually raised... 105,000 euros of this interim financing from 170 people. Mm -hmm. So this was on the first side, same, same, right? So you got some money, um, but the money is from more people rather than from one person. And you still got your uh, runway, which means you still have some time in uh, until you, you earn, uh, you can survive some time until you earn revenue again. Um, but there are two things that are really striking here. Uh, so the first thing is more entrepreneurial and general, and the second thing is more business designing. And I'm going to start with the entrepreneurial one. So um, what actually happened, you remember what interim financing is, right? Interim financing means you take some money because you know that you will not have revenue for some time. Yeah, I think sometimes it's also called like a bridge loan. So yeah. it's a it's a loan that helps you bridge between two <laughs> two um, situations. Something in yeah. in the middle happens where you need just to get another loan that helps you get through the tough situation. Yeah, exactly. So usually it's not that you don't have any revenue, but in this case, it was really interim financing because they expected to not have any revenue for some time, and they actually did for the period of the lockdown. However, the lockdown. Um, was over after like a month and a, and a half. And now they are actually selling more than they did last year. So their sales actually did not decline, but they uh, increased compared to last year, even with this pandemic. And they even hired an additional employee during this crisis. So they're not negative to year 2019, but they already are positive. 
their business is already better, mm. even though we had this pandemic. And this was because that crowd was actually not only investing in them, in them but also buying for them, from them. So these 170 people, they were also, they were not only investors, but they were also drawn to buy from this um, company because they wanted it to survive, right? Mm. Um, and the rest did the good PR and marketing they got from this active response to the crisis. Mm. And, and sure, there are some circumstances that play into that are more bound to luck, right? So firstly, you people don't like to go on public transport, so you would rather buy a bike. Uh, secondly, you choose to spend some part of your holiday money on bikes because you sense that you might not be able to go to any other country, but going to stay in, in Austria, which means you have some spare money um, also, again, for a bike, for example. And also that the fact that small shops in Austria were allowed to open earlier than the big change, uh, than the big change, uh, chains, which also helped this small bike shop. But still they could not have capitalized on these circumstances if they had not reacted that proactively and entrepreneurial and um, yeah, fighting um, as compared to with taking a loan and just trying to survive and hoping mm. to like get business back after like two or three months. I think this, this story is kind of complementary to the first one, which in the first one they had a contingency plan and they just dusted off and started using it. And this one is like, it just maybe struck them more like, oh, it just happened. And then they were not passive, as you said, but they were like, okay, what can we do even now? Even if we didn't see this coming, what is the thing we can do? I think this is a really nice story also, being fast on your feet and thinking how can we do something even now when it feels like we can just be on vacation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, and actually now... Also, your second part of the story was business design and numbers. And now let's prepare yourself for some numbers. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. now I'm going to try to declutter how this deal, so this crowdfunding deal was actually designed. And we will hear some uh, euros, some dollars, some percentages. So just get prepared for that. Um, but it's not too complex. So um, just ask anything if you, if you want. Still really interesting because um, now I really want to talk about how this deal was designed. It was designed in a way that the bike shop, you remember, they take they took out 105,000 euros alone mm -hmm. um, and having to pay 8% interest on top. However, the deal is designed in a way that the shop does not pay back the interest in terms of money, but in terms of vouchers. So in terms of goods and services of the shop. And this is so great that, for, for... Sorry, that means that instead of me returning uh, 100 and let's say 115,000 back to bank, so 105 times uh, plus 8%, right? So instead mm -hmm. of me paying back 115,000 to bank, I would need to give out 115,000 worth of um, bikes to my people who invested that, in me? That's a great question. So firstly, we have these 105,000 and this needs to be just paid back um, because this is the loan. But usually you pay 8% per year. So it's not 105,000 times 8%, but it's like times 8% by the uh, number of five. 
So per year you have eight percent interest. Mm-hmm. So and these this eight percent interest per year you would also have to pay back in terms of money, obviously. So because this is how a bank makes uh, its money, right? They yeah. lend you a certain part, and then they charge for lending you an interest rate, which is calculated usually per year. Yeah. So this was eight percent per year for five years but this deal was designed in a way that yes the 105,000 euros still need to be paid paid back in terms of money but Uh these eight percent interest rate per year would not be paid back in terms of money but in terms of vouchers so if you buy a bike you get a voucher you can use a voucher if you have a bike service uh, you can use a voucher interesting And, and that's that's great for for some for several reasons that I um, want to go through like one by one now. So first, um, you can say that they bought future revenue because the amount of people um, that the amount of uh, that people will spend will be very likely higher than the voucher. So let's say on average, um, so we just have to uh, divide. 105,000 uh, euros by um, these 170 people, we arrive at like 680 euros per person. Which means uh, if you have 8% um, interest rate per year, you arrive at like 300 euro of interest rate that you would earn. And this is not going to buy you a bike, right? But still, you're going to use this voucher in the shop. Which means mm-hmm. this bike shop will sell you a bike for, let's say, 1,000 or 2,000 euros, and you get off this, um, these 300 euros. Which means you, this bike shop has still bought this future revenue by giving you this voucher. Yeah. So that's awesome. This is the awesome reason number one. They bought future revenue with this. Um, because as I said, the things that you will buy will very likely be higher than the voucher you get from the interest rate. Um, but even if this is not the, the case, paying this interest rate in terms of mo- uh, vouchers is much better for them than paying this interest rate in terms of money. Because if they sell a bike, they have a margin on the bike. So they do not sacrifice money, but they only sacrifice parts of their margin which is not actual cost, it's opportunity cost. Sure, they lose money, but they don't lose actual real hard money. Yeah, in other words, like if you, if I would have to give a bank back 300 euros, I would have to give back 300 euros. But if yeah. I'm giving out a bike that's worth 300 euros, I probably got it for my supplier for 150, which means yeah. it's cheaper for me. Yeah, that that, exactly. that is that is genius of this approach. Yeah. And that's really cool. So um, again, it is um, it is great that they have vouchers and um, and not money. And the second reason why, so even if you if they don't sell a bike, um, let's say you use this voucher for let's say a bike service, this shop has the option to give uh, you as a customer a time slot where they would not have a paying customer which means this spot would be empty. And again, it doesn't cost them real money. 
because they would have to pay their employees anyhow. And if they use uh, like a slot for me, if I have a voucher, they use a spot for me where they don't have a paying customer. It's not, again, real cost because mm. fixed cost is there anyhow. And again, it's just cheaper, as you said. Um, so a lot of upside uh, for for the company. Um, and in the end, the effective cost is much lower than this 8% if you would have um, a bank giving you 8%. If you turn it around, it is equally interesting because you could say, okay, if it's so much better for me, why, why would anybody buy this? So when you do something which is good for you, obviously you need also to ask, will your users want this? Will somebody actually buy this? And crowd investors were clearly okay with this rule, right? Obviously, 170 people invested a total of um, more than 100,000 euros. And this is because they know that they will buy from this shop anyhow. So this value for them is not lower, but it's actually the same or even higher because they still have their favorite bike shop. Uh, They still get the same amount of value because um, the voucher, if they have a voucher or if they have real money, it doesn't matter for them. So what they did with this design is they kept the value for the user at the same level while actually uh, decreasing the cost on their side with this design of the crowd investing deal. I think an interesting part also here from the business perspective is the true cost of a loan. A lot of times you can hear from uh, business people saying that not all loans are equally expensive. And generally, like having an investor, like VC capital is more expensive than a bank loan. Why? Because you are giving up your equity, you're part of the company, right? And with a bank loan, you're just paying back the interest fee. And now with this part, with crowdfunding, you're not even giving back the fee, you're paying with your own product, which is even more favorable. So like not all loans are created equal, so to say. <laughs> yeah, even if the interest rate seems exactly the same, right? Even that, yeah. Cool, nice example. So we had one with the prototype with numbers. Now this is kind of how different financing affects and being proactive and using different channels. Uh, anything else on this example? No. All good. I have. All we had three. We had three very positive <laughs> examples and uh, three um, ways you can be more proactive and how you can do great business in in these times. There is also one more cautionary tale uh, from a huge, huge, very famous unicorn Airbnb uh, and online marketplace for short-term rentals. So um, maybe let's go back a few months. So in the beginning of 2020, Airbnb was getting ready to go public, meaning it would offer its stocks for the first time on the stock market. So this is called IPO, Initial Public Offering. And the valuation that Airbnb was aiming for and that investors were comfortable with was around 50 to 70 billions, which is really great. So... (laughs) And then Corona hit, right? We had a COVID situation. And what happened, obviously, is the global travel basically came overnight to a standstill. So the, the airplanes were not flying, people were not comfortable traveling, etc. So a company went from roughly a million bookings per week to half a million in just one month or even less than that. 
In other words, probably their revenue decreased by more than 50%, which again is a lot. Mm. We talked about it before. If you have a thin profit margin and Airbnb actually is not profitable yet. So it used to be a little bit profitable last year, but it's not again. So it's like it's hovering around being and not being profitable. So 50% decrease in revenue is a lot. I think the company still feels confident that we'll recover and that people will start traveling again, which mm-hmm. I think is a relatively safe assumption. Yeah. But the question is, what if the current situation persists longer and you have to just sacrifice some of your assets? Maybe amount of people you have, maybe certain uh, strategic assets, software, etc. But I think real story here is not just this part. It's more like a fiasco. Uh, with cancellation policies. So Airbnb is one of those companies that prides itself with their culture and with how open they are and how well they communicate with their customers on both sides. Because let's not forget that Airbnb is a platform, two-sided platform. They have guests and they have hosts, right? So Airbnb... Yeah. So they have two kinds of customers. Exactly. That's what you're saying, right? So you need to account, uh, you need to accommodate for the wishes of not only the ones who want to book something but also the ones who want to rent out something exactly because they're not owning the properties right Mm. so what airbnb did really cleverly is that it offered every host to choose its own cancellation policy Mm. and if you ever use airbnb you can probably remember checking their cancellation policy sometimes it's flexible sometimes it's strict so with the flexible for example you can cancel 24 hours prior to the check-in with a strict you basically, if you cancel seven seven days prior to check-in, you get 50% back. Hmm. But then when the corona hits, you know, obviously guests started canceling their trips. First of all, like if you were in Europe or US and trying to go to China in February, you were just, I'm not going to go there and people started canceling. And what happened is that obviously these traditional or regular cancellation policies that host chose, they, they were the ones that were applied meaning that I would not get a full refund as a guest. Yeah. But a lot of guests, so one of the Airbnb customers, right, felt this was really unfair because it was just not safe to to travel. So, so it was um, not a free choice not to go, basically. Exactly. So obviously guests started complaining why they're not getting the full refunds. So then Mr. Chesky decided to and approve the plan to refund guests uh, that I think, I believe it was... On all the bookings before between March 14th and May 31st. So that's as of now. Maybe it already changed by the time you listen to it. And obviously, this was really good for guests, but it enraged hosts. Mm-hmm. Right? It just they lost a huge chunk of their revenue. And this move was a drastic overhaul of the long-term uh, policy of the company, which is that you as a host, you can choose your own policy. And now it was just overridden you know yeah overnight and let me just try to understand this so when you say these these customers so the ones that booked the place they got refunded this does not mean that airbnb refunds them this means that the company or the one that rented out this place had to refund them so airbnb forced their other customers to refund the other customers yeah, I'm not sure exactly about the exact cash flow. If mm-hmm. the host already gets the money before the before they offer the service, mm-hmm. um, so it could be that Airbnb was already had this money and just transferred it back to guests instead of hosts. 
Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure about exactly the exact cash flow, but yes, in essence, but, that was the the story. But even yeah, even without cash cash flow, even if it wasn't there yet, yeah, you still like you still tell your the one customer of yours that I will take fifty percent of the revenue from you. Even more, because in this case, they yeah. lost everything, right? Yeah. And if you think about it, hosts are Airbnb customers too. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes they even call them their partners. Mm. And that's just not how you behave to your partners. <laughs> yeah. So yes, now the company has went back and said, oh, sorry, hosts, that was not the right way to communicate. And we made this decision without consulting with you talking to you so they decided to give 25% of what they would have received for all the cancellations between March 14 and May 31st mm-hmm. but in reality there is it's even less than 25% because there is small print so you're getting like the 12.5% not 25 and if you think about a lot of people who have decided to invest in properties in pursuit of Airbnb revenue or profits so many of them are now cannot pay on their rents cannot pay on their leases and you know it's just means a lot of people will lose these investments um I, I think we see a lot of these people as just huge capitalists but some people do rely on airbnb to to just survive also their own revenue so from business design perspective or from design perspective or even like human perspective like whenever you're running a platform and you have different customers you should just think of how you can be more you know the solidarity is really important, right? You shouldn't just be solving one problem and creating a problem on the other side. I think the dialogue is really important in these crazy times. And, you know, just by making this more of a dialogue, the Airbnb could avoid this whole situation because I think a lot of guests and hosts would understand that some compromise needs to be made. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, did you see any other policies that are are in place you mean like from competitors yeah i mean there is a yeah. competitor called vrbo and they have very similar situation like airbnb in terms of yeah. installation policies etc but um they have not changed them meaning yeah you know hosts the ho- the, the the policies that hosts chose they're still mm. like the ones that are being used yeah uh so the interesting thing here is that it, i can speak only for again and this is very localized the austrian market because obviously also austria is very tourism heavy mm-hmm. um, and uh, people who own a hotel um, have huge problems now but i see here that the response of them is um, compared to what you just told me from airbnb uh, very thoughtful because what they did is actually they um completely removed cancellation policy which means they said you can postpone as often and as long as you want um, and if you can't come you can't come and the reason for this is because um, custom uh, customer acquisition costs so getting somebody to book at your place is already so expensive that if you basically have very strict cancellation rules they will cancel very early which means you completely lose your upside. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they really loosened their um, their cancellation policy, saying that if you have booked now in July 15th, you can still cancel at July um, 14th. 
So all the mm. people keep their reservations, and if they can, they just postpone. Um, and I think this is a very smart move uh, from from this perspective because it gives the customer the flexibility and has the business upside of not losing a very expensively um, acquired customer. Yeah, that's a really cool example. So if anyone is in this space, I think what would be interesting to do is to model out. So we talked about this in the first example about taking numbers and modeling them to see what needs to work as is maybe to do the same with these cancellation policies to see what it makes obviously from the also from the human perspective more sense but also sometimes it also makes more sense from business perspective if you loosen up the cancellation policies it may be even better because more people decide to choose for your hotel for your accommodation for your place just because they feel more safe that they can be more flexible um with their traveling yeah good i think we covered a lot franz do you have any more thoughts any more stuff you wanted to discuss no i don't cool so for anyone who listened to the end if you have any thoughts any questions about these examples you can find find us both on linkedin or just go to our website beyondusers.com slash podcast and there you can also ask questions in the comment sections um again i want to say that if you want to learn more about business you can also check the seven day mini mba on beyondusers.com so it's uh, seven emails sent over seven days teaching you about several interesting business concepts that can be applied to work of any designer and business designer. Cool. That's all in this podcast. Say bye, Franz, and I'll do the same. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. It was a great session. Bye. Thanks, thanks Franz. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.